I'm writing this from room 314 of the La Quinta Inn in Birmingham, Alabama. $71 a night. It's almost 1 a.m. and I spent all of yesterday walking through Auburn, handing out 5,000 postcards for my new book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. Was it worth it sales-wise? I don't know, probably not. But I just believe strongly that authors need to promote their own work. So get out there, hand out postcards, scream and shout and bark, distribute your bookmarks and peddle your wares because no one else is going to do it for you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Shalise Manza-Young, the Yahoo sports columnist and former New England Patriots beat writer for the Boston Globe. This is episode number 283. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, so I graduated college in 1994. You graduated in 1999, so that means we are both old. And um, <laughs> when... You entered the profession. I know you, you you started your career at the Providence Journal and you had internships and you went to Syracuse, which is a great journalism program. And I was thinking about this. We sit here in 2022 and we both tweet somewhat regularly and you write for an outfit literally called Yahoo that you wouldn't have known what that even means in 1999. <laughs> when you look back at coming up and entering this field and having these dreams of being a sports writer, are you content with this all or are you like, how did this all go off the track so badly? No, I, I am not at all content. Um, it, it really makes me sad um, in a lot of ways, how things have, it's just gotten so bad. I hate this insider culture. I hate this idea that you just throw shit out there, you know, and sometimes it's right. Or there's just no, nobody questions anything anymore. It seems like, or at least the highest paid people in our business, the highest visibility, highest paid people in our business, they don't question anything. They get a text message from somebody and they just copy and paste it and put it into a Twitter window. There is no ombudsman. It seems like there's no editorial oversight. You can just put anything out there. And nine times out of 10, it's, PR, which, you know, you and I are old enough that we were taught like PR is PR. If you want to do PR for you, for the team, go do PR for the team. Journalists are supposed to ask questions and provide context. There's none of that happening anymore. And it's, it is fascinating because, you know, we are around the same age. And so we've gotten to see this like painfully slow decline of the business. And it's, it just sucks. You know, it just, it really I've taught before at Emerson college and I try to stress to my kids, like you are supposed to ask questions. You are not just supposed to get a text message that says, Oh, Dalvin cooks ex girlfriend is stalking him and just put it out into the world and leave out the fact that he was abusive to her. You know, there were strong allegations that he was abusive to her. You're just, you're supposed to ask questions we're supposed to push and even in sports, you know, I know it used to be called the toy department, but it's, it's just, like I said, it makes me sad to see what, what's happening. You know, what's changed a lot is um, the immediacy joy of people's struggles, like finding a really embarrassing moment for someone or finding a really sad moment for someone recording it and putting it out on social media as quick as possible to see how many hits you can get. I feel like there's a new meanness that, I mean, sports writers could have always been plenty mean, myself included, probably yourself included, but I feel like there's a base level cruelty that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. No, am I overstating that you think? I think some of it's cruelty. I think some of it, a lot of it is just engagement that people have this. Some people have an addiction to the attention. Some people are getting pressure to get attention and clicks and, and that sort of thing. It just, I, I even in my personal life, I feel myself pulling back from like Instagram because I put pictures of my children up there and some, and even lately I'm like, why am I, 
why am I doing this? Like, why? I, I, it's, it's all too much. You know, I don't think we were meant to engage with each other so much. Um, yeah. and, and even, you know, as a sports writer, some of the things that get blown up now are things that really only warrant, you know, when you were a beat writer or you'd see in the newspaper, it was like a transactional dot, 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 you know, it's so-and-so mispractice. That's it. And now that's that somebody missing practice generates like all these impressions and attention and it's, they missed practice. You know, it's, it's just, it's too much. Um, and I just feel like there's, I don't think we were built for this, you know, we, we, there's too much and now it's all gone bad, too much bad. I feel like not all bad, but there's too much bad. I actually think my wife and I've talked about this. I think we've been poisoned. I am not even being sarcastic. I really mean this by the endorphin rush of social media. So we put something out there and even like people like you and I, you know, who've been around and we're older and we're supposed to be mature and we're parents like, there is something, if we're being honest, like I go to see how many listens I got on my podcast this week. And if it's a high number, well, I get that little pleasure burst in my head or you put out a tweet. I don't I don't even know what to do about it, except kill off social media, which I use for research all the time. So I don't really know what to do about this. No, you're right. There's there's been um, I feel like maybe two or three years ago, I talked to somebody for something I wrote for Yahoo. And this man had done like a documentary on what social media has done to our brains. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, you know, I've, of course, Yahoo has the metrics and keeps track of who reads what and all that kind of stuff. And at one point, um, one of my editors was like, oh, you should have a goal of at least one column a month that gets a million clicks. And I was like, I don't want that because it seems like it might potentially put me in a place where it's I'm writing something that I might not necessarily believe or, you know, I, I just might. And it wasn't, he wasn't going to tie like my salary to it or anything like that. But even having that as a goal, I can't remember the last time it's probably been months since I asked them, Hey, when's the last million clicker that I had? Because if it does, fine. If it doesn't fine. Um, much of what I write is based on race and gender. Um, and so a fair number of my clicks are hate clicks. I, there is no <laughs> demarcation for hate clicks versus love clicks. Um, and so there's a possibility that if I have over a million clicks, it's because it got on some right wing website and they're screaming about Oh, look at this black woman. She never shuts up. And how come she doesn't do this and that? I see some of that in my Twitter mentions. So, but then like you said, you know, you, you want to see engagement. Like I have two Instagram accounts and I, I want to see people are liking a picture of me and my family, or I want to see, I have one for crafting that I do. And I want to see that people like this, you know, crafting thing that I put on my other Instagram account and it makes me feel good. But at the end of the day, if I like that card or I love that picture of me and my family, that should be all that matters. It's so fucked up. It's not. Even <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. So fucked up. It's so fucked up that like I put up some picture of my dog and 12 people like it. And that does something to my brain. Like we're all just guinea pigs in this grand experiment. Mm -hmm. And we uh, it's just cra I'm not a conspiracy theorist in any way. I'm the least conspiracy theory person ever. But it does feel like we're all marionettes on strings right now. And Just they're taking advantage of us. Yes. And they're they've, they've wired us or they're they're charting everything we do, you know, and the, on Instagram, it's the ads that you get. And it's, you know, because they're tracking your IP address and there's all that kind of stuff. You know, the number of times where I've been on my computer and will search for something. And then I go on my phone to look at Instagram and there's wow. an ad related to the thing that I looked at. It's scary as hell, but these companies are making billions of dollars and, and we're all worried about making sure our filter is right. So we look our prettiest, you know? I know it's bonkers. It's bonkers. We're basically getting fed candy while they put cyanide in our head. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, all right. So you wrote a piece. You're, you're obviously you're, you're here. You're a columnist for Yahoo. You're excellent. You wrote a piece, August 29, 2022. Fascinates me. And it was uh, while Duke volleyball player Rachel Richardson endured racist abuse from BYU fans, authorities were far too slow to react. And your lead, which was great, 
is not Rachel Richardson's responsibility to be the, uh, the adult in this situation. It is not the responsibility of the young black woman being victimized for simply existing to keep her emotions in check when the venom spewing racist or racist is not. Is not the responsibility of the young black woman being victimized for simply existing to show grace and keep playing so as not to rock the boat or upset anyone else. It is not the responsibility of any black woman to make you feel better after you sat idly by and did nothing as they were attacked for simply existing. It is not the responsibility of black people to make sure they are pleasant enough or smart enough or dressed well enough or educated enough or earn enough to be accepted, acceptable enough that you find it bothersome that they were attacked simply for existing. Every alleged adult, every alleged adult in the arena Friday night failed Rachel Richardson and her black teammates, every single one. And there was about a volleyball tournament that took place at Duke, BYU, blah, 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 blah. Excellently written. And here's my question. And I really thought about this. When it happened, I thought, number one, I thought this is awful and freaking BYU and blah, blah, blah. And then I thought it is kind of weird that not one person spoke up and said to the guy yelling the N-word, yo, asshole, shut up. It just seems like as bad as conservative whites in America can be, it would be weird that no one, not one person. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the after it happened, there was like, obviously BYU did an investigation and who the hell knows. And they say there, there was a misunderstanding and blah, 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 blah. I'm really fascinated by this, right? As a journalistic issue. You write about it. Do we need to make uber sure it happened as she said it happened or is it okay to show i mean you're a columnist we respond to the news you write about what happened this is what happened is it okay to sort of take her word assume this believe this is what happened and write off of it this spans political it spans race it spans everything i think of it as a journalistic issue that i'm not sure of the answer of so at its root and obviously this particular situation BYU has cast doubt on whether or not it actually happened. Um, but there were multiple things that I measured um, and, and considered before I ultimately went ahead with this piece because, you know, there wasn't video and yada, yada, yada. I live in Boston. A few years ago, Adam Jones of the Baltimore Orioles said that he was called the N-word while at Fenway Park. The Red Sox said, yes, it happened, of course, you know, local sports radio, uh, one of whom has a long history of anti-Black racism, screamed about, well, there's there has to be video, yada, yada, yada. Another NFL reporter who's based here said, I've been to 200 Red Sox games. I never heard anything. I've never heard that word, yada, yada, yada. At the end of the day, the Red Sox were like, yes, it happened. A couple years later, Tory Hunter said, the only team I would never play for is the Red Sox because I heard the N-word there and the Red Sox explicitly said, yes, Tori is telling the truth, yada, yada, yada. All, what it all comes back to is we as Black people and Rachel Robinson has so much more, and Adam Jones and anyone else who says this, you have so much more to lose by lying about something like that than you have to gain about saying what happened. So I wasn't there. I have to, I'm not a praying person at all, but I hope to hell that Rachel, Rich, Rachel Robinson did not lie because it makes things exponentially harder for us when incidents like that do happen. But yes, I basically took her at her word because why would she lie? When you put something like that out in public and you make that sort of allegation, in the current climate that we're in, we're just talk, we just talked about social media, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. The minute she put something like that out there, and I think it was her godmother um, was really the one who publicized it, they are going to have a horrendous tidal wave of hatred come their way. And Rachel Robinson, being the age that she is, has lived basically her entire life online. She has to know at this point, she has to be smart enough. She's at Duke, one of the best private universities in this country. She has to be smart enough to know that if she lies about this, she will never hear the end of it. And even by telling the truth, she's probably getting death threats and all kinds of things said to her. So being with my lived experiences, I leaned, I'm going to believe her. 
That's what it came down to for me in that situation. Wait, so I I think that's 100 million percent understandable. I also think like the odds that she was lying about this. I I agree with you. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would she why would she possibly lie about this? So I, I do not disagree with anything you said. Here's my question I'm interested in. Let's say hypothetically she did. Let's say there was some weird thing where it didn't happen, right? Do you as a columnist, do we as journalists, like you then, let's say five months later, we find out she comes out and says, I just made it all up, blah, blah, blah. Do you then have to write about it again or no? I probably would. And the first thought that comes to my mind is I would write, you made this so much harder for everyone else. Because when I hear stories about, you know, I've, (laughs) I've been a sports writer since I was like 18 years old when I started the Providence Journal. I have dealt with sexism for the entirety of that time. I'm 45 years old. So for 27 years of my life as a professional woman in this space, literally Jeff, the first story when I was like 19 years old, I remember Dave Bloss, who was my sports editor at the time, sent me to Brown University. Some wealthy alum had endowed the football head coaching thing. So now it became the Perlman family head coaching chair at Brown University because they had an extra $5 million. They wanted to say that, you know, <laughs> their name is on the head coaching thing. So the man, his name is Dave Roach. I will never forget it. Um, Dave Roach was very curt. He answered my questions about the situation. And then at the end, he started, well, why are you, why aren't you covering women's sports? Why are you doing this? And I went back and told Dave Bloss and he was like, well, that's bullshit. If you want to cover women's sports, you can cover women's sports, but you want to be a sports writer. So that's everything. Right. And he was a thousand percent supportive of me. So, you know, when I hear of women who will get into sexual relationships with sources, it makes it that much harder for all the rest of us because we're already dealing with people assuming that the only reason we've become sports journalists is to get into locker rooms and find a baby daddy or a spouse. It can't possibly be that this is the thing that we've dreamed of since we were you know, 14 years old and started subscribing to Sports Illustrated and couldn't imagine doing anything else, which is basically my story, you know, it had to be that, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to start breaking news in exchange for, you know, sexual favors or whatever the case may be. So if it came out that Rachel was lying, that would probably be, I would address it. And that would be how I addressed it, that you have now made it so much harder for black people who do endure this on a regular basis that, you know, they won't be believed. It's hard enough to get people to believe it. Um, and then when something like that happens, people are just always going to glom onto that. You know, every time a professional athlete is accused of sexual assault, people immediately go to the Duke lacrosse case. It's literally the only case that they know for sure was not real. And it happened like 25 years ago, but people immediately glom on to, they immediately bring up the Duke lacrosse case and people would do that with, with this as well. But I have a weird question for you. And I don't, I'm, I got to think about how to ask this and not sound like it's a complete one, <laughs> but um, I always personally, I find whenever a journalist acts awful, awfully, whether it's asking for an autograph or posting a selfie or their Twitter uh, main photo is them with an athlete, you know, doing so like it makes my blood boil because it makes us all look like a bunch of fucking hacks. Right. And I wonder, like, as a woman in sports journalism, there, you know, there's a constant sort of probably unfair criticism of uh, those women reporters who certainly do exist, who sort of where this is not fair. I'm not saying this is fair, but where particularly mm-hmm. short skirts or where particularly blah, 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 or they are kind of flirty with athletes. I'm not saying it's, you see a much more TV obviously than you do a print. In fact, you see it almost exclusively with TV. <laughs> do you feel like people like that damage people like you? Mm-hmm. Do you see it as a problem in our industry or no? Is this just, <laughs> am I just being a Neanderthal guy who like should just shut up? 
I, so I think if, if people, people in this case being coaches, players, et cetera, if they know that a certain reporter is sleeping with, even if it's one particular player or one particular assistant coach, I think it just makes it so that everybody will assume, well, if this female reporter is doing it, then maybe this female reporter will too. And maybe that female reporter will too. And it just, and, and it's even, you see it in like popular culture. That's when it really oh. drives me crazy. Like I, I started watching that show ballers cause I love the rock. Um, or I used to, and I started watching that show and his love interest was the, was a team reporter. And I was like, okay, I'm done. Right. You know, it's like, you couldn't introduce a woman into it. And I know of, you know, one or two female NFL reporters who entered, who were in relationships with GMs and, and other people. And it, I, I do, I think it is damaging to all of us because it just propagates the stereotype that the only reason most of us are in this business is because we're looking for a baby daddy or a husband. I also think like there's a huge number of people like that. All right. I feel like you and I will speak the same language here. I really have a problem lately with journalists who are like, look, I'm just going to admit to you. I'm a Seahawks fan because I'm putting it out there and I'm being transparent. And that makes me actually more honest as a reporter. Like I was like, why the fuck are you a Seahawks fan? You're a 50 year old adult. Like, why are you rooting for a team at this point in your life is. And I actually think it does incredible damage to this profession. I don't disagree. I feel like it was always a no, you can't do it. You can't root. And now it's like, no, it's okay. You can do it. Yeah. I think. And the thing of it is I've had this discussion with students of mine in the past is I saw it on ESPN, you know, remember um, when the Cubs won the NLCS or something like that. And, and Mike, um, not Mike Tirico, Mike Wilbon, you know, they had him go out that he was at the game in a Cubs Jersey as a fan. And they were like, no, go on camera. And he apparently to his credit, because, you know, he's older than we are. He was like, no, 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 no. You know, people aren't supposed to know my allegiances necessarily. And he, they, they were like, no, no, people will love it. And so I think once that wall was dropped and I think also Bill Simmons, because, you know, people forget (laughs) Bill Simmons started out as like a Boston Celtics fan in his basement, just writing about the Celtics. And so I think he sort of ushered in this idea that you can be completely transparent about who you root for, because I think a lot of fans expected us to be like them anyway. You know what I mean? Like you would get that. So when I worked at the Boston globe, um, I worked with Dan Shaughnessy, who's still there as a columnist Mm -hmm. and people's biggest criticism of Dan Shaughnessy was that he was too critical of their teams. And why wasn't he a fan like they were? It's like, that's not our job. That's my job when I was a beat writer covering the New England Patriots was to tell you what was happening with the team. If you ask me a question about, you know, Bill Belichick, the GM versus Bill Belichick, the coach, I will tell you Bill Belichick, the GM stinks and Bill Belichick, the coach is great. But by and large, my job was to tell you what was going on with the team. And if they sucked, they sucked. And if they were great, they were great those are the facts. You know, I'm, I'm not spending hundreds of dollars to be at the game. Like you are, I'm there to chronicle what's happening. It's why I wanted to be a sports writer in the first place. So I wanted to be there, you know? So it's, I, I think it depends. And, and I guess this is part of the social media and the Twitter thing. I think it depends if, so if I was still covering the NFL full time, I think I would, be okay being public about being like a Celtics fan or Connecticut sun fan, or certainly a Syracuse fan. Cause you know, I went there and, and I, I gave them a lot of money over the 10 years after I graduated. So, um, but yeah, I think if you're an NFL writer and you're openly saying I'm a fan of team X, uh, you know, again, we're old enough that you weren't supposed to do that. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who wants to tell you about... Dad, it's me, Emmett. Casey left for college. This this is Jeff Perlman with my, my daughter, Casey, and... Dad, seriously, Casey's gone. 
but I'm here, and I wear Royal Retros gear too. Look, I'm wearing the Arizona Wranglers jersey you bought me, number 11, Greg Landry. Let's play catch, Dad. No, you're Casey, Casey Perlman. You do these ads every week, right, Casey? Every week, these ads. Casey, so happy. Daddy-daughter day. Casey who? Mom, can you call CVS and see if Dad's meds are in? Did you, um, this is a big, broad, fat question. Did you enjoy being an NFL beat writer? <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed, I love telling stories. I love telling stories. That's why I wanted to become a sports writer. You know, like I realized pretty early on that what I wanted to do was kind of like what you got to do when you were at SI was travel the country and talk to athletes and talk to their families and teammates and what made them tick and what made them the people that they came to be. And so I did get to do some of that, not as much as, as I wanted to, particularly as, you know, Twitter came to be. And especially um, once the Boston Globe went to online first, instead of print first and my deadlines became much earlier, it, it took away any time I really had to develop and flesh out, you know, big feature stories and stuff like that. So there were some, some men that I met that I think are good men who I had very good professional relationships with. Um, the fact that I covered Tom Brady for a decade, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time, how many people get to say that really, but covering that specific team and Bill Belichick and that culture, I came to hate it. And it's why I needed to go. Well, you came to hate it. Why? It's just, to, it, it should not be. You let people curse. It's too, he, it should not be that fucking hard to cover a football team. It's football. Wait, how do you mean? It, I, I would love the elaboration on this. What do you mean? The way he treated us and the like, so here's a small example. Okay. We would get, if they had a Sunday game, on Sunday night, we were supposed to get the schedule for the week, you know, what the media schedule looked like for the rest of the week. We would get Monday, Tuesday, the players had off. So there was rarely anything. And then maybe you would know what you were supposed to do on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday would be TBA. I'm a grown ass woman with children and a spouse. Why can't you tell me on Sunday here's what your schedule is for the rest of the week and stick to it. Why do I have to wake up or, or check my email at 7 PM on Tuesday night to know where I'm supposed to be the next morning? Other teams do that. They will set the schedule on Sunday after the game. And that's the schedule for the media schedule for the week. You know, the, you look, it's funny cause I still follow on Twitter, several of the beat writers and like right now, Mac Jones is hurt. How's Mac doing? He's fine. Any word on if he's going to play Sunday? He's day to day. It just, that whole, like, it just, it was soul crushing. You know, it just, unless you ask him about the history of punting or the history of long snapping or Mark Bavaro, the tight end for the Giants, you never got anything useful. And it just, and a lot of the players were scared to say anything because, you know, Bill's, right-hand man would come tap him on the shoulder. If he had a quote in the paper the next day that they thought he shouldn't have said, it was like, you're playing football. You're playing, you're playing football. This is not guarding the nuclear codes. This is not, you know, trying to find a cure for cancer. You play football, you coach a football team. Why does it have to be I feel like you would not piss on me if I were on fire because I'm sitting in the media workroom. And it just, it got that combined with because of Twitter and social media and all of a sudden it became, well, you have to confirm this and you have to confirm that things that five years earlier didn't matter. And all of a sudden I'm chasing, you know, Adam Schefter reported this. So I'm going behind him to call the same agent for him to say, yep, that's true. It was just soul crushing. It was just, it was, it wasn't what I signed up for. I, I want to tell stories. I want to let people know, you know, about the stories of these men and shine light on, on how they came 
to become NFL players and the blood, sweat and tears that they put in it. And their mama worked three jobs and their grandfather, you know, was the first black principal in, you know, at the high school in Mississippi, whatever it was, I want to tell those stories. I don't want to sit there for 20 minutes and have Bill Belichick drone on to me about the 0 and 11 Indianapolis Colts sounding like the 1985 Chicago bears. I have no interest in that anymore. Do you think Belichick, do you think there's a perverse part of him that just took pleasure in being this, like he became this character of the tight lipped coach who's an asshole and maybe he actually bought into his own persona and just sort of enjoyed the persona itself. I don't know. Cause people will tell you behind the scenes. Some people will tell you behind the scenes. He's personable. Mm. You know, I never saw it. I did not have a good relationship with him. I know other reporters who do. Um, what does that mean? Wait, what does that mean? I did not have a good relationship with him. How, what is, how does that manifest itself? I wasn't texting him directly and asking him for information. You know, um, there was a, I just didn't want to play the game. You know, I didn't want to genuflect to him. Um, there was this sort of idea that if you were critical of them, then they would shut you out and stuff like that. And, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to play that game. You know, I covered them for a stretch of time where they were incredible. There were not many, certainly weren't many losing streaks, but I was there for um, Spygate. And at the, I think I left the beat right around the, when deflate gate was really mushrooming. Um, but it just, I, you know, we, he, I would, I had a better relationship with the players and I would rather talk to the players, um, get information from the players and Michael Smith, um, formerly of ESPN now, you know, brother from another and has his own greatness going on early on, he told me the best way to cover the Patriots was to, to not cover the Patriots, meaning to find sources elsewhere in the league. Um, and that's sort of how I tried to do it is having, you know, people in other teams who could tell me, you know, what they heard was happening with the Patriots. Was it, you said, you know, you covered Brady, um, is covering Brady similar to covering Belichick where it would be very hard to get anything unique, original, thoughtful? Yes and no. So um, NFL, in the NFL, players, teams can sort of designate or they used to be able, this is how it was before the pandemic. I don't know how it is now. But you could say that there were one or two players who only had to talk once a week. Um, Typically, the locker room is open Wednesday and Thursday and Friday before a Sunday game. And so Brady would talk on Wednesdays. Um, and so that would mean on Wednesdays, there would be 75 to 80 because Boston is just super duper saturated as a media market. So there would be like 75 to 80 media members and he would talk in front of all of us. Um, and oftentimes you wouldn't see him again. He would stand in front of the cameras, say what he had to say, answer the questions and then go hide. Sometimes now, so I was there from 06 to 2015, training camp 2015. Um, sometimes you'd see him in front of his locker on Fridays. And if there was something you needed to ask him, then he, and he, and he wanted to oblige you, he would answer. He and I actually had a pretty decent relationship. I was not, um, we weren't like super close or he wasn't like a, a source for me, but you know, I would ask him once a year, Hey, can we sit down? And he would give me 10 or 15 minutes, just he and I one-on-one. Um, and we would talk about whatever. And he was, he was fairly candid with me. Um, there was definitely a respect there. I think, um, I wasn't somebody who was running around always tweeting about, Oh, Brady sneezed in the locker room today. Hopefully he's not sick or whatever. You know, there were some other reporters at the time who did that. So I think we had a healthy, I think he respected me. I would say that, um, and so he would sit down with me once a season. Um, and like I said, we, I'd get 10 or 15 minutes with him one-on-one and we would just talk about um, whatever, you know, I remember talking to him about Giselle being pregnant um, when she was pregnant with their first kid together and, and those sorts of, you know, things. Do you have moments when you're a writer or maybe a moment when you're a writer 
So you're like Tom Brady. I would have once a year, I'd get my 10 to 15 minutes, which in the context of sports journalism seems amazing. Wow. He had this 15 minutes with Tom Brady. But if you think about it as a human being, it all makes us kind of pathetic, you know, like, wow, we got 15 yeah. minutes with a guy who can throw a football really far. Like <laughs> it's so fucking sad and pathetic that we do this in a lot of ways. Like, did you have a moment that you, you mentioned before you're a grown ass woman? Like, did you have a grown ass woman moment where you're like, this is such bullshit. Like this is such nonsense that I'm just as worth, I'm just as valuable on this planet as you are, if not more so. And I'm begging X person for this amount of time, or I'm getting blown off by this person. Do you have a moment where you're just like, fuck, what's my life? Yeah. I, so it's funny because the moment that I always point to as the one where I realized I couldn't be a beat writer anymore was I was, I was at track practice one afternoon and my boss, my editor starts te uh, texting me because somebody had reported that the Patriots were going to host Tyran Matthew because remember back then he was the honey badger and he was like the big name in that pre-draft, but they were going to host Tyran Matthew for a pre-draft visit. Now NFL teams get to host 30 guys in pre-draft visits. At that point I had probably covered them for like, I don't know, six or seven years. So they had hosted 200 guys and maybe drafted like two of them from the guys that they brought in for pre-draft visits. Right. And so my boss is like breathless, like, oh, you have to confirm this. You have to confirm this. And I was like, okay, this, that's it. I, I, I'm not. Why? Because you don't care who the other 29 guys are that they hosted. Right. But because they hosted the guy with the funny nickname who spent a night in jail for, for smoking weed, then we have to confirm that they had the honey badger. Because two days later, Devin McCourty, who still is with the Patriots, we found out that he underwent um, wrist surgery, I think it was, in the offseason. And I was able to confirm that directly with Devin. That's important. The starting safety undergoing offseason wrist surgery is important to the fortunes of the team. So being able to confirm that is a good thing. I don't give a shit if Tyran Matthew is coming for a pre-draft visit because, again, they had probably hosted 180 other guys in the time I had covered them for pre-draft visits. And we never cared about any of them. And now all of a sudden the honey badger, I have to run around for 20, 30, 40 minutes, whatever it was to confirm that the honey badger was coming to new England. You wrote a story in uh, 2011 um, called weightlifted uh, Patriots mm. on a higher power and cancer fight. I just want to read your lead real quick said the false sense of strength he felt, the trying to convince himself it was all no big deal, all disappeared when Marcus Cannon hung up with his mother. That's when the reality hit him full force. He has cancer. I broke down after that, said Cannon, an offensive tackle from Texas Christian University, picked by the Patriots in the fifth round of the season's draft. I don't know if it was more me or telling somebody else, like thinking about what everyone else was going to feel. I just broke down after that. I got in my truck, started driving. I was crying hysterically. It was just fear. I didn't know what was going on. On April 20th, just days after being told that the mass he'd undergone a biopsy for was benign and a little more than a week before he was drafted by an NFL team, Cannon was told he has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a treatable form of cancer found in lymph tissue. Uh, the reversal field stunned Cannon and his family. And you told me a while ago that of all the stories you'd written during your time covering the Patriots, this one might have been the most meaningful for you. Uh, why? Well, to this day, I'm the only person he's ever talked to in depth about that. Um, my coworker at the time, uh, Greg Bedard, had a relationship with someone in Marcus Cannon's uh, agency. And Greg worked with them to be like, you know, just talk to her. Just talk to her one, talk to one reporter, get it out there. And then the story is out there. Because of course, you know, NFL prospect diagnosed with cancer days after the NFL combine is a big story. And Marcus Cannon was a late first round, second round um, slotted to, to go in the late first round, second round before the cancer diagnosis. He wasn't, you know, just some guy. He was, he was considered to be a really good prospect. So their agent, the agent finally says, yes, 
And partly it was my favorite because I got to live out my like SI dream that I had as a teenager because I flew into uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. I went to Texas Christian, talked to his head coach. I met with Marcus in person. (laughs) We, we met at the hotel where I was staying in Fort Worth and I didn't know the area. He didn't know the area. So we ended up in this like really loud sports bar and I'm asking him to like bear his soul to me in this like loud sports bar. It was almost like a Hooters type place. You know, the waitresses are in like booty shorts and um, there's loud music and, and it's like a Hooters type situation, but neither of us knew. And I'm sitting there like, Oh, tell me about your cancer diagnosis. And he's getting choked up. And meanwhile, there's this craziness. Um, like it's just an odd setting for that sort of conversation. And then I went, I had talked to his parents, um, or I had asked him, you know, could I talk to his parents? His parents lived out in Odessa, Texas, which I was like, Oh, I'll just drive. And people were like, no, 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 you are not going to drive from Fort Worth to Odessa. So I get in a plane, fly to Odessa, meet with his family in the home that Marcus, his brother and his father had built, like they built the family home in Odessa, the three of them. Um, So talk to his parents and his younger sister um, and then went to a little Mexican spot with them and had dinner. And then we realized like, oh shit, I have to get back to the airport. Like I literally flew in and out same day. So they're like escorting me on the highway, driving like 85 miles an hour back to the airport so that I can, you know, drop off the rental car, get back on the plane and fly back to Fort Worth so I can come home. Um, But really it was, it, it was that part of me got to live out my teenage dream of how I wanted to to be as a feature writer and what I thought that was. Um, But then also it really does mean a lot to me that I am the only person once he talked about it, he wouldn't talk about it anymore. Um, And so he told, he really was um, vulnerable and honest with me um, about that whole thing. And, and, you know, that's that sort of NFL players are mythologized anyway but this guy's like six, four, 320 pounds. Like he's that larger than life figure. And here he is brought to his knees um, because of this mass on his belt line. Don't you think it's interesting? Like um, if you were to talk to maybe college aspiring sports writers, they would ask you, Oh man, what was it like covering the Super Bowl? Blah, 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 blah. Seahawks, Patriots. And like for you and for me, and I think for most of our peers, it is infinitely more rewarding and memorable to be being driven back to the airport 85 miles per hour or sitting across from this guy in like a Hooters type bar talking about the mass that was discovered. Like those human moments make mm-hmm. this job times a thousand. Agree? Yep. Yeah. The, the My second favorite story, probably my second favorite from my time covering the Patriots was the year that they brought in Chad Ochocinco and if people remember, like he came and he was, you know, telling the media, like um, doing group hugs with the media and saying he wanted to stay with a fan and all this other kind of stuff. So I get his phone number pretty early on and I'm trying to set up a time with him. When can we talk? When can we talk? Excuse me. And so after a couple of weeks of not really getting an answer, I decide to reverse engineer it. I know he loves Starbucks. I know there's a Starbucks a couple of miles from the stadium. So I text him and I say, Chad, I'm going to be at the Starbucks, you know, down the street from the stadium. If you want to talk, come meet me there. So I'm sitting there. And after a little while, here he comes. He was driving a Prius millionaire who drove a Prius millionaire athlete drove a Prius pulls up in his Prius. And this particular Starbucks, it's in Walpole, Massachusetts. It's like many Starbucks in a strip mall. Um, It's one of the freestanding ones with a little patio And the two of us sit on this patio for, I think it was like two hours and me just recording everything he says. And we talked about so much that day. And his, his time with the Patriots was a disaster as a player, but I so enjoyed, like I learned so much about him in that two hours, just as a, you know, as you know, we're sort of like, I, I feel like as journalists, we're, we're almost like 
not amateur psychiatrists, but you know, we're, we're sociologists and people are just so fascinating. And he was so candid. And the things that we talked about, we talked about, you know, his childhood because his mother abandoned him. Like his mother chose his brother and not him. And he stayed behind with his grandmother and his grandmother raised him like so many black grandmothers, very strict. And, you know, he had to, had to keep his grades up and had to, you know, but she kept him in sports because she wanted to keep him off the streets. He grew up in, in Miami. Um, he talked about being his reaction the day that his agent called him and said he was getting out of Cincinnati because his ending in Cincinnati was, he just wanted out of there so bad. Um, but, and the funniest thing was, we, so we're sitting on this patio and of course, people are driving past the patio to get in line for the drive through at the Starbucks. And this car pulls up and looks and waves and is beeping. And he looks at me and he's like, who is she waving at? And I'm like, you're Chad Ochocinco. You know, at this point, I think he had been on reality show and I think he'd already been on Dancing with the Stars. So he had a far broader fan base than just NFL fans. And he's like, who are they waving at? And I'm like, you like you're <laughs> it's Chad Ochoseco sitting outside the Starbucks. So that was like, it was just fun and it was really enjoyable. And the Patriots especially, you know, didn't want players to have, you know, they didn't want players to meet with reporters outside of the facility really. And, and they tried to restrict it so much. Um, and I just, he was just so fascinating to me. It's also good to find a guy who doesn't give a shit like about team. Yeah, he, right. It's just good to find that guy. Always. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Yeah. He did not. Um, he didn't mind, you know. Right. Well, you and I, we grew up in an era where African-American athletes were oftentimes labeled with words that in hindsight, I don't think I realized it as a kid, but in hindsight are really kind of disturbing, which would be he's a malcontent. He's lazy. He's disinterested. He's unappreciative, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder, like, from your viewpoint as an African-American woman who grew up as a sports fan in the 80s and 90s, and now you're covering it. Do you feel like we as a business have gotten any better about that? Or do you still feel like we sort of treat black athletes? If a white guy does it blank, if a black guy does it, we think of it differently. Yeah, I think by and large, that's I think it's. I think it's some people are becoming more aware of it because it's getting talked about more and more and more. The one of the small things that I've been harping on in the last couple of years is the wording around contracts, how teams will be like, oh, the Baltimore Ravens are giving X player $85 million. No, no, no. Steve Bashotti did not wake up on Tuesday morning and decide to give this player $85 million. This player earned $85 million through years and years and years of work and has such a specific skill that maybe only a hundred other people on the planet have that he has earned the $85 million contract. And so I feel like when you say give, particularly in leagues like the NBA and the NFL, where the majority of the players are black, you're feeding into this idea that they don't earn anything. They're just, you know, the, the same trope about laziness and black people and, and all that kind of like black people only want handouts. Right. Meanwhile, you have white Brett Favre literally being handed $8 million that was intended for welfare recipients in Mississippi. But, you know, Lamar Jackson demands and a hundred percent should get, if I'm Lamar Jackson, I'm walking into Steve Bashotti's office and saying, look, four years, $190 million fully guaranteed. Let's go. And I, if I'm Steve Bashotti, I'm taking that deal, I right? See. Because <laughs> you have the best quarterback on the planet. But when it comes out, and it's, it's funny because Ian Rappaport and I have a very interesting relationship, and I've been publicly critical of him before. And recently I noticed that he tweeted something about somebody's contract and said, agreed to a contract or, or, you know, is going to get, he just didn't say is being given that the team is giving the player the money. And I messaged him and I said, Hey, 
I know I've been critical of you in the past. So I just want to let you know, I see what you did and I appreciate that you've made that change. And he was like, yeah, thank you. And, and he, he said the same thing that he realized um, the wording. However, he came to that, um, however, he came to realize that it was wrong to use that wording. But I do think, I mean, you look at how, like Josh Allen, the way that people talk about Josh Allen, like he is some, and he's, this is not to say that he's not a good player at all, but the style of play that Josh Allen plays with, black quarterbacks been playing that way for years. But now all of a sudden it's, oh my God, look at how Josh Allen plays football. Mike Vick, Cam Newton, who wasn't as accurate as Josh Allen, I'll give you, but there have been black quarterbacks for years who have been able to combine a running ability with a passing ability and been successful, you know? And so I do think some people are recognizing it and, and trying to be better. Um, but I still think we have a ways to go. I just think it's really funny. Like uh, I'm a New Yorker and Everybody loved Wayne Corbett, right? And Wayne Corbett was a hell of a player. He was not, mm -hmm. the story was great. Hofstra, great, right? Julian Edelman, converted quarterback, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. But like, <laughs> it doesn't take much of a sleuth to see that like, there have been plenty of fantastic African-American slot receivers who nobody gives two shits about. But the scrappy right. white guy comes along and we're just like, and also the adjectives used, scrappy, hardworking, dogged, gritty mm -hmm. they're just not placed in front of the names of african-american receivers in the same way or players in the same way and the more you pay attention to this shit i feel like every white guy in america at some point if you're even a human has this moment when you're like holy shit i've been reading this stuff in ridiculous ways for years i thought about probably 15 years ago where i'm like oh my god this is so preposterous and it does still go on it's still very frustrating but not, a, but not enough of your fellow white men are, are coming to this realization. Nothing sends me lately. You mentioned Julian Edelman. Nothing sends me lately. Like people who are like, oh, Julian Edelman belongs in the Hall of Fame. I'm like, are you, I just need to get this off. I, I, I cannot fucking believe that anybody thinks that Julian Edelman belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I am sorry. I will take that to my grave. He does not belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. His story is great. Yes, he was a scrappy white guy does not belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Okay, I just need to get that off my chest. I got to disagree with you only because he's Jewish. And uh, we, need <laughs> we need more dudes in the hall. So I'm guessing, I'm going no on that. We only have like six who ever played in the NFL. So show a little respect here. Um, I want to ask you about one more column because I'm fascinated. You wrote a piece uh, June 29th. Joe Burrow continues to speak out on important issues, unlike his NFL QB contemporaries. And, uh, you know, you wrote, it's been changing slowly, but for decades, NFL quarterbacks were almost exclusively white by design. Fairly unfairly, they were painted as a respective team CEO, an extension of the owner class and head coaches. Maybe some of them wanted to speak up for things like human rights, civil rights, and equality. But if they were more concerned with keeping their wealthy white team owner happy, they kept quiet. The NFL overlords aren't exactly known for being activists. For looser tax codes, maybe, but certainly not for things that concern a person's basic dignity. I just want to say, I freaking love your writing. It's just great. Oh, like, really. You. Great. And um, thank you. I think you need to hear that from me. And um, you're right about Joe Burrow, who's clearly sort of a liberal minded guy and has spoken out on issues and good for him. And here's my question for you, because I'm just like you. I'm sure our political beliefs probably align very much and our social beliefs probably align very much. Let's say Tom Brady doesn't just have a, you know, there's a MAGA hat in his, in his locker, but let's just say like Tom Brady's like, I am ardently, um, anti Roe v. Wade. I think abortion should be illegal. And I am for, I think Donald Trump's plan on so-and-so is great. And I think blah, blah, blah is great. I hate to say this, but if we're going to commend guys like Joe Burrow for speaking out, which I do, and LeBron James for speaking out, don't we also have to, in a way, defend the asshole arts conservatives who also take the time to speak out and don't just talk about football? Yeah, but I think it goes back to the quintessential. I actually think I I might have written something along this lines in a column I wrote about Brett Favre over a year ago. Um, because I had to, I, I think I did. Because he's, Brett Favre was running around talking about, um, you know, I'm so tired of the way that these players are, 
ruining my experience watching football with oh, their yeah. politics and yada, yada. And then like two months later, Brett Favre tweets, I'm voting for Donald Trump and so should you. Wait, I want to say one thing. My favorite tweet of all time was when Donald uh, Favre posted a picture of him with Trump and, and someone tweeted Brett Favre posting another dick pic. <laughs> it's true. But it's, it's, I think I wrote at the time, like, as a, as a journalist, we always get upset when guys give us rote answers or when they're this. And so you should celebrate when guys speak out, even grudgingly when they speak out on things you don't agree with. And, and I think it just goes back to what people don't seem to understand with the First Amendment. <laughs> just because you say something, you can pound your chest all you want about you don't think myself or my daughter's should have the right to choose what we do with our body. I, as a fellow American, get to tell you that you're a fucking asshole for thinking that way. So right. speak out about it all you want. But for me, in my you know, job as a, as a columnist and, and what I, why I love what I do right now so much is I will tell you why you're wrong, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from, and bring education or bring um, data or whatever it is to back up my point of view, you can say what you want, but I'm going to tell you why you're wrong and, or why I think you're wrong anyway. Um, you know, I know you remember, but when they found the noose that wasn't really a noose, but it was a noose mm -hmm. in Bubba Wallace's in the garage, um, in NASCAR a couple of years ago, I made the point to like educate people on why it's so hurtful and painful when black people see a noose and what it triggers for us. And, and just a couple of paragraphs on like, here's the history of how lynchings were used to terrorize black people throughout, you know, the Jim Crow era. And, you know, maybe it gets through to a few people and they understand it a little bit more and maybe it doesn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can say what you want. And, and I've even, I've said this on Twitter. I've said it in, you know, in interviews and stuff like that for years, you can disagree with me and something I've written, just do it respectfully. If you come to me the way that a lot of people come to me, I'm not going to engage. And, it, and, and if I do engage, well, oftentimes I will write something and then not send it because I don't want to get fired um, or get in trouble. <laughs> I have one in my save drafts right now for this guy that emailed me actually on that borough column, I think, because he was like, Oh, abortion this and how could yahoo pay you you know more people care that donald trump played golf yesterday and he sent it from his small business email account like it was the name of the small business at gmail.com and i closed it with i don't need your fucking prayers maybe you should pray for for more customers to your little small business and i was like oh uh, yeah. i shouldn't send that it felt really good to write it um but I never sent it. <laughs> that might be a wise one. That might be a wise one. I've had many of those too. Where I'm like, I my difference is I usually do it. And then I'm like, God damn it. What the hell? Um, I know. Wait, all right. I have two more questions for you. You, um, you, uh, I, I don't ask this on this podcast very often, but I feel like you have probably flown a million times covering sports through the years in your time flying. Have you ever thought you were about to die on a plane crash? No, never. Thankfully. no, Nope. I've, I've been very, very fortunate flying. I am. I'm one of those people though, that when it lands, if I don't feel like we're slowing down fast enough, I'm like putting my foot through the, the floorboards underneath me, like hit the brake, hit the brake. Um, but no, I've been really fortunate that I've, I've a little bit of turbulence, but I'm a pretty good flyer. Yeah, that's good. All right. And uh, my final question I'm required to ask is what is your worst confrontation you've had with an athlete or coach? One of the funniest ones was, so the X Games got their start in Rhode Island. People don't remember that. But um, years ago, the, the very first ESPN X Games were in Rhode Island. And I was still in Providence at the time. And, you know, of course, the older white guys on staff were like, I want nothing to do with this shit. I don't, you know, there were guys doing street luge. So they're putting their, themselves on these long boards, skateboards and hurtling down 
College Hill in downtown Providence and crashing into hay bales. And they also had speed climbing one year. And so like rock climbing, but on a wall and who could do it the fastest or something like that. And I went to go talk to this athlete and they refused to talk to me. And I was like, you realize absolutely nobody has any idea who you are. And I'm offering you free publicity for you and for your sport. And they were like, nope, nope, I can't talk right now. Or I think it was like their spouse was like, no, 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 they can't talk right now. And I was like, are you shitting me? Like, you're a competitive speed climber. There's like eight other people who have any idea who you are. And you're refusing to talk to one of the very few newspapers who's, you know, they are to ostensibly write about what's happening. It was, it's, it was one of those things, you know, the X games, some of them, the sports are to me are dumb, but some of them are really fascinating and, and require a lot of skill and, and that sort of stuff. And they were like, no, 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 we can't talk. And I was like, all right, you go ahead with your bad self. I'm literally here to write about you and give you attention. You're saying right. no. And then my response nowadays is all right. Bye. You know, like, right. I mean, I was like, I might've been like 23 years old at the time. So I was a little bit flustered, but I do remember being like, are you serious right now? Like nobody knows who you are and, and I'm here to, to tell them, you know, and then you fast forward and I'm covering the Patriots and, you know, there were times covering the Patriots where I actually would think about my days hovering, covering high school sports and how they at least were excited to see me. You know, I could, the parents sucked, but the kids were great. You know, the parents were the, the bane of my existence was when I was in Providence, we picked all state teams because of course the Providence journal is like the paper of record for all of Rhode Island. And, um, you know, we would pick all state teams and you chose the number of kids on any one all state team was based on how many kids were on the field or, you know, competed at any one time. So all state basketball was only five kids and then you could pick a second team. So of, you know, every high school in the state plays basketball and I can only pick 10 girls as you know, the t first team all state and second team all state or field hockey or whatever. And I would get, you know, a coach one time screamed at me because I didn't pick his point guard, second team all state. And another mother accused me of taking bribes for the field hockey all state team. And so it got to a point where the parents, I don't want to talk to you, but the kids were always so excited, you know, to, to talk to you and, and they'd be nervous or, you know, I knew that I still have my clips for when I was running in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in the, the local newspaper there. I still had all the, all of my clips, my mother cut out for me. And so, you know, I knew that some of those kids would have the, would do the same thing. And so at least they were happy to see me. I feel like there's a scandal brewing here. And I just have to, as a journalist, have to ask you this question. Did you take bribes for the field hockey all state? <laughs> I won't tell you. I will never tell. I will never tell. Cause I didn't think Wendy Stevens belonged on that team. I'm just saying, I thought that was like a little fishy there. They were so one time and this is, this is unbelievable. So there was a girl who was a point guard and her dad had been first team all state in, you know, 1972 or something like that. And so she was a solid basketball player, but I saw her enough that she had no left hand. And if you got in her head early enough in the game, she was useless. So I didn't pick her first team all state. I picked her second team all state. This man, if he had done to anybody else what he did to me, you could have had him arrested for stalking. He sent letters to me and all of my coworkers at the, at the Providence Journal. He called constantly, which I was hardly ever in the office. So it was one of my poor coworkers who had to take this guy's raging phone calls. And she also played volleyball. So in Rhode Island at the time, was it? Yeah. Basketball was in the winter and then volleyball was in the spring. And so she played volleyball and I went to a volleyball tournament one time and she happened to be there because it was the beginning of the season and her team was there and her dad was there. He stood over me and screamed at me for 15 minutes and the, the mother, the wife is sitting right there watching the whole thing, never told him not to do it, just sit, sat there and screamed at me. I was terrified, terrified. I was so scared that the next time I saw his daughter's team play basketball, I brought my husband with me 
Wow. Because my husband's a six, three black guy weighs about 300 pounds. And I was like, all right, if you come over to me when my husband is here, then you're off the rails. But it was insane. But even to the point where she went on to play to division three school. And when she graduated, he sent me another letter. It was like, oh, she was successful. No, thanks to you. And I was like, you are fucking insane, dude. You are just seek therapy because that is a level beyond. Like, it was just so crazy. I'm going to make this a public service announcement to anyone listening here. I'll speak for you, Shalise. I'll speak for myself. I'll speak for other sports writers. We do not care whether your team wins or loses. We don't care if your kid is first state all team or second or third. We don't care. It's just a job. We're working hard. We love it, but we don't care. Don't care. Do not care. Don't care. Well, listen, big admirer of your work. Love your career. Think you're great. Appreciate you coming on. You were actually excited to come on this podcast. I was excited. No, I'm telling it's because I'm a writing. And I really, I guess the older I get, the more I appreciate um, the business and, and people who have done it the right way. And I'm sure you know, I read, you know, stuff when, when you were at SI and, and you, you got to do what I always wanted to do. And like you said, I, I'm one of the, the people who, who clicks on the Yang whenever it, whenever it comes up and I see that there's a new one in the stream, I'm, I'm usually clicking on it. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Seriously. Thank you, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Shalise Manza-Young, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Shalise on Twitter at Shalise M. Young and read her work at Yahoo Sports. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>